you whatever as whatever the Lord has laid upon your heart, if you want to say a word about the ministry down there, we'd love to hear that. And most of all, the word of God. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I guess I'm supposed to turn this on, right? Testing. We're good. Okay. Uh, we are glad to be up here uh, this weekend, and uh, glad to have survived the uh, the kayaking trip. Actually, it was a uh, rather other than we had a little bit of walking, and we had the possum attack or beaver. Yeah, possum. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know, James was out there attacking us all. Um, but uh, that that was it was it was a good it was a good trip. It really was. Um, I I thought it would be more hot uh, hotter. Yeah, whatever that word would be there that's supposed to be used. Um, but with the breeze on the river, it really wasn't as bad, as at least as, as I expected it to be. Uh, but we had a good time there. I, I will say, I always forget, which one of you has, pic, one of them have pictures of the beaver. Yeah, there we go. So if you want to see pictures of the beaver, they actually have pictures. And he got a lot closer to some other people than he did to me. I'm just more chicken than everybody else. So uh, when, he, uh, when he started coming my direction, I was kind of scared. <laughs> so... Um, uh, it's been a it's been a, a lot of things that have occurred since our last time up here. I believe um, last time we were up here was June of last year, and uh, we finally closed and got rid of our house that we've been asking you to pray for for many years now. Um, we got rid of it at like old prices, <laughs> um, but uh, at least it's no longer that continual thing that we've been dealing with. So we thank you for your prayers for that. Um, we were able to go to Alaska last summer um, and minister up there at a church camp, and uh, we rejoiced at that opportunity. It was kind of neat. Becca got to go with us, was able to take a little time off of uh, working at Tri-State last summer uh, and go up there, and uh, we kept our, our adventure, our goal was to see a moose in the wild. We didn't see a moose in the wild. We did see a couple moose, meese, moose? We got a couple of uh, those things in plural, whatever that would be. Um, uh, in, in captivity, but um, uh, but we had we had a good time. It was really neat up there. Um, we Josiah and Karen, who Josiah was here with us last year, um, they are now in Oregon. So they were preparing to go to Oregon when we were here last time. They are now in Oregon. Uh, they've been there since what September, I guess, of last year. Uh, and uh, he is the youth pastor there at West Westside Baptist Church in Eugene, Oregon. And seems to be enjoying the ministry there. They are—he's uh, very busy. Um, um, running, he runs the youth group and the children's ministry, and helps out with visitation and a bunch of other things. And so um, it's it's good for him, and it's kind of neat to. Uh, he calls me. He, he calls me his uh, living commentary, which is really scary. Um, but uh, he'll call me and say, "Hey, Dad, I'm working on this passage," and and you know, and he'll bounce. You know, might write in my thinking on this and. And I look up stuff. <laughs> so, but uh, but um, so it's been good to have them out there. They are um, they are expecting, and so we'll have our second grandbaby, Lord willing, August thirty first is when it's due. And our daughter Chrissy and Johnny, who you guys have met as well, uh, Chrissy is expecting in January. So we're going to have two new grandchildren, um, and one will be close by because Chrissy lives like a mile from us. So that'll be nice. Uh, Rebecca is up at Tri-State serving up there for the summer again, so uh, she, we actually tried to figure out a way to get her down here for this weekend, but that didn't quite work out. 
uh, but she's serving the Lord up there at camp, and we uh, uh, rejoice that her, her heart served the Lord. She graduated from high school. Uh, things are going fast. We were, um, Dana was there yesterday at the kayaking trip, and his daughter, Julie, Julia, was there, and uh, he's like, Becca wasn't much older than her uh, when we first started doing the kayaking trip, and so uh, time is flying, and uh, we do thank you as a church uh, for your support for us for as we had the vehicle issues last year, and uh, we greatly appreciate that. We debated on, we, we have a, an old Suburban again, <laughs> and we have that, that newer uh, car uh, but we wanted to put the kayaks on it, and we were not—we didn't want to mess up the newer car, <laughs> so we brought the suburban. But thank you for your help there. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter ten. When you said Deuteronomy this morning, I'm like, uh-oh. But uh, so you probably have recently covered this passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter ten. Deuteronomy chapter 10. How often do we think what God think about what God expects or God requires of us? Um, what does God require of his people? What does God expect from his people? You know, if you were asked that question of a lot of, uh, of different people, you would get some pretty different type of answers. Uh, perhaps you would ask somebody, what do you think God requires of you? And some would answers things such as, well, God doesn't require or expect anything of us. Uh, we can just do whatever we want, and it does not make a difference to God. Uh, perhaps others would say, well, God just requires that we obey the golden rule or the Ten Commandments or something along those lines. Uh, perhaps some would focus on what God expects from Christians and say things such as, well, we ought to be attending church, we ought to be tithing, we ought to be doing this, we ought to be doing that. Um, there's, there's a lot of things there that people would probably get to, uh, give as an answer to that question. Uh, there are a couple of places in Scripture, though, where God specifically makes comments about what he requires, what, what the duty of man is. Uh, for instance, in this passage we're getting ready to read, he says, what does the Lord require? And he goes through it. And in Micah chapter 6, it says it this way. He says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And we're going to be looking at that tonight. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as, as, as Solomon gets to the end of his, of, his, of his book there, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And the reality is it's important for us to know what God's requirements are. I remember many years ago, when, now that I'm old, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I was in college, my original plan was to be a coaching minor. And... Um, and so as a, as, as, a, as a Bible major, you had to take six hours of math, science, or computer science. And I took computer science. So my freshman year, I took the six hours of computer science. And then one of the classes I was supposed to take for my coaching minor was a class called kinesiology, uh, which deals with the various aspects of the body and stuff like that. Well, in order to take kinesiology, I had to take biology. So I should have taken my six hours of math, science, or computer science to take the biology as a prerequisite in order to be able to take the kinesiology. So now I was in a situation where I didn't meet the requirements that that class needed in order for me to take that class. 
So I changed my minor and I became a history minor instead of a coaching minor. I still took a number of coaching classes, but I didn't do the coaching minor. But because I didn't know what the requirements were, I wasn't prepared properly to move forward. And uh, it, it, it made me make some changes there. We come to this passage this morning, we find that God gives us some specific things that he expects of us. Uh, he tells us what he expects, and I consider, uh, I want us to consider these things as we look at God's requirements for godly living here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to go ahead and read, starting in the beginning of the chapter, and I want to read through verse 13, the beginning of the chapter to get the context, uh, but the primary verses we'll be looking at will be 12 and 13. It says, At that time the Lord said unto me, uh, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come unto me, come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood, and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mount, having the two tables in my hand. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount of, out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made, and there they be, as the Lord commanded me. And the children of Israel took their journey from Beeroth of the children of Jaakan to Mosira, there Aaron died. And there he was buried. And Eleazar his son ministered in the priest's office in his stead. From thence they journeyed unto uh, Gudgada, um, and from Gudgada to Jabath, a land of rivers and wa of waters. At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister unto him, and to bless in his name unto this day. Wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren, the Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. And I stayed in the mount according to that first to the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also, and the Lord would not destroy thee. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, take thy journey before thy, the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swear unto their fathers to give unto them. And now Israel what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Let's go ahead and open in prayer as we begin. Our Father God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given unto us, that we might read of it, Lord, that we might learn of you, that we might uh, learn how we ought to walk and to live and to uh, properly serve you and live for you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have to be able to gather together as your people. And, and Lord, I ask that you would help us to be attentive to your word. I pray you would give me clarity of thought and clearness of mind. Lord, I pray you would help us not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers. And I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and our lives even today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So here we come to this passage and, 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 and it says in verse 12, uh, Now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require thee? He gives an answer that involves five things that God requires. And we're going to be looking at those five things this morning. However, I want us to consider some important preliminary thoughts before we get into those five things. Uh, for we are going to be looking at what God requires 
And in, suing, and in doing so, there are some things that we need to understand about the nature of keeping those requirements. The reality is, while God expects us to keep these things, this is while he requires us to do that, the reality is you and I cannot please God in our own strength and in our own ability. Uh, we cannot keep any of his requirements without him. Uh, Jesus put it this way in John 15 and verse 5. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, it says it this way, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 reminds us, Wherefore, my beloved, is, as ye have always obeyed, not, in my pre- not as in my presence only, but, also, uh, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the idea is of working out your sanctification, the, the fruit of your salvation. But it says in the very next verse, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Uh, Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. It's not I can do all things, yes, I'm able to do it. No, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. One of the things we find about our Christian walk is that there is a divine human transaction. God expects us to obey Him. God expects us to get into His Word. God expects us to to let the Spirit of God use us and transform us. But God does the work in doing so. It is not simply let go and let God, although there's ways to understand that. It's not simply, oh, it's all about me and I just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and be more godly myself. No, it's reality is we, as God works in us, become what we ought to be for God. By the way, it's also not divine osmosis. We don't just say, oh, well, I'm saved now. God's just going to change me. I don't have to ever do anything. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to do anything. And so we look at these requirements then and we notice a couple things. Um, Obviously, we recognize, the first thing we need to recognize here is this is not written to us, okay? This is to Israel, okay? I'm not, I want us to be clear that he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? And yet, while it is written to God's people of the Old Testament, I believe a lot of these same principles would apply uh, to us. Um, we are, we, over 150 times in the Bible, we find this very first requirement mentioned. So the first one of these, we find from God, it says in, in verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? but to fear the Lord thy God. You recognize that God requires us to fear Him? God requires us to fear God. And we don't use that term a lot in our day and age. People don't talk, you know, in the old days you would read things and it would say, God fearing man and things like that. It's descriptions of people. And, and, and we don't typically use that today. I, I doubt most of you, as somebody says, as Brother Bruce said this morning, you probably don't have, when's the last time you read a Facebook post that said so-and-so was a God, I'll, I'll, I'm adjusting your, your picture. But, you know, last, you know, but, oh, he was a God fearing man. We don't, we don't really use that expression a lot today. Um, and yet we are told throughout the scripture that we are to fear God. Throughout the Bible, the fear of God is equated with wisdom and knowledge and upright living and avoidance of evil and insight. In Ecclesiastes 12.13 that I mentioned earlier, it says the, when we look at the whole duty of man, it is to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, even at the end of the age, in the book of Revelation, fearing God is equated with the gospel to be preached. It says in Revelation 14.6, 
And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made the heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. It says there that he has the everlasting gospel to preach and the, what is it, the message he's preaching? Fear God. If we're going to meet God's requirements for godly fear, we must first of all understand a few things about godly fear. We must first of all understand the manner of godly fear. What do we mean when we talk about godly fear? When you speak of fearing God, are we talking about you know walking around in a constant shudder? You know, oh, God's going to zap me or something like that? You know, there are people who think that that is what the idea of fearing God and that God is this big ogre in heaven that's just ready to zap you if you try to have fun or you try to do anything on your own or whatever the case might be. The reality is there's a couple key aspects to this idea of godly fear in Scripture. The first is that it entails the idea of reverence. One aspect of fear is reverence or trust. Without a proper fear of God, we cannot meet any of the other requirements. Um, I want you to look here. Um, we're going to do a little Bible study experiment here. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 since you're pretty close. Hold your finger in, in Deuteronomy 10. And I really should start with the Matthew passage, but I want to do the Deuteronomy because we're already close to it. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. It says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Let me find it here. Yeah. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Okay, keep that in mind. Now go all the way over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, of course, we have the temptations of Christ. And, um, the, uh, and, and there's three main temptations that are mentioned in this passage. And I'm sure you're in, in Sunday school. Are you doing Deuteronomy? Is that what you're doing? Okay. Um, you probably already heard this, but all three, of the to- all three of the verses Christ references in the temptations are from Deuteronomy. Um, and we notice this in verse 10. It says this. It says, Then saith Jesus unto him, Give thee hence Satan... For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So in, in Matthew, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Now there's a difference in language, obviously. Hebrew, probably Jesus is speaking Aramaic there, and it's translated into us for Greek. So there's three different languages probably involved in this. But, there. but notice that Jesus equates the word, and Jesus says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. And him only shalt thou serve. And then he's quoting from Deuteronomy, which says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Jesus equates the idea of fearing God with worshiping God. And if we're going to properly fulfill God's requirements, it starts with us fearing, worshiping God. And so there's that aspect of a reverent worship of God. There is also, secondly, indeed an aspect when we speak of godly fear that does involve a sense of dread, but not a sense of cowering dread like we spoke about a little bit ago. And, and it also, would that dread would depend upon 
the maturity of the believer. What do we mean by that dread? Well, first of all, there is an aspect of punishment. God punishes sin. Uh, we don't like to hear about that today. Now, thankfully, if we're believers in Christ, Christ has taken that punishment for us. But the reality is, there is that aspect of punishment from sin. The Bible tells us that God hates sin. And he declares that sin must be punished. It says in Habakkuk, Thou art of pure eyes and to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. And Nahum 1, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm um, and, and, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And the reality is there are times in which there is a fear of punishment that is a proper fear. It is right for us to understand this thing displeases God and there is punishment that comes from that. Uh, when, we were, when we lived in Mount Holly years ago and Josiah was just a little guy, uh, we had a fence around our yard and there was a child, a young boy across the street uh, who also, they had a fence across their yards and Josiah and him were friends and they would stand on both sides of the street and they would yell to each other and stuff there. But we had a gate in the fence. And we had to teach Josiah that he could not open that gate because if he did, he could get into that road and then he would be possibly hit by a car. And so, in order to give him the right fear of not doing this, there were times when he tried to answer that gate and he received punishment for that. That was a natural thing and that fear kept him from going down a path that would have led to his destruction. I remember for me, it was when my stepdad, uh, we were lived in Virginia for a while, and my stepdad would do the thing, you know, you, a lot of you experience this, right? Go get the switch. <laughs> and go, you know, go cut off a piece from the, the, the tree out there. And it would be serve as a, as, a, as a reminder for me not to do that thing again. And so there is that aspect of, of that fear of punishment that does help us to avoid doing things that would be displeasing to God. But the reality is that fear changes, that dread changes as you mature in the relationship. When um, I went to college, my, my stepdad was, I, I love my stepdad. I, I, again, I think I've shared enough of my testimony, you know I kind of came from a weird setup with the family. Um, I went to college and I got to the point where I was now bigger and stronger than my stepdad. Uh, we'd come home, we'd go out and we'd wrestle in the yard. Now he could still beat me a lot of the times even though I was bigger and stronger than but it got to the point in my life where I would obey my stepdad not because I feared him beating me with the switch anymore but because I dreaded the idea of displeasing him. I didn't want to do something that would bring him shame or frustration or whatever it would be. And you know, there, is that, that, there ought to be that sense in our relationship with God where we say, I don't want to displease my God. I don't want to do this thing that I know brings reproach to the name of Christ. I don't want to do this thing that, that is against what God desires for me to do. And so I dread that. We seek to please our spouses, for instance, not because they're going to beat us with a rolling pin, hopefully, <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but because we, we don't want to displease them. And, and so when we think about this idea then of godly fear, we recognize it is that reverence, but it is also that dread. And so that's the manner of godly fear. And I need to move forward here. We're going to be on this one point in a long time. The second thing we notice about this godly fear is not only do we notice the, the manner of godly fear, we also notice the motivation of godly fear. 
And, and we see that in, in, and we think about, well, what, what motivates us to fear God properly? Well, I think there are two key things that motivate us to fear God properly. The first is God's character. When we think of who God is and what God is like, that ought to motivate us to have this sense of reverent fear that we just spoke about. And so we look in Scripture, and, and again, for the sake of time, we won't do this. You guys know most of these things, right? But we see that God is all-knowing. That God is omnipresent. That God is all-powerful. That God is holy. He's righteous. He's loving. He's merciful. He, he, God is a just God. And when we think through those characteristics of who God is, and we think about where our life lines up, it should cause us to say, wait a minute, because of who God is, I ought to fear Him. And not only do we see then the motivation in God's character, we also see God, the motivation in God's conduct. Not just who he is, which should be enough, but also what he's done. First uh, Samuel, uh, Samuel 12, verse 24, it says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. So Samuel says, fear the Lord. Why? Consider what he's done. And you know, when you and I think about what God has done, it should cause us to fear Him. Obviously, we could go through many things He's done. He's given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our place, to die in our place on the cross. He has done incredible things for us. And that ought to motivate us to fear Him. By the way, not just for the salvation. He tells us also He's given us, in Second Peter, He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that you and I need in order to, to live our life and to be godly has been given to, unto us by God. Uh, we're told that he sustains us, right? It says, um, and, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist in Colossians 1.17. And so if we're going to fear God, if we're going to understand and fulfill God's requirement of fearing him, we need to understand the manner or the meaning of godly fear. We need to understand the motivation. We should consider the manifestations of godly fear. And again, I'm just going to say these. I'm not going to delve into these. But, you know, there are some things the Bible says are characteristics of those that fear God. Uh, for one, it's knowledge of wisdom and, and, and uh, the knowledge of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, it tells us in, in, in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Uh, even the, the Psalm, I didn't know he was going to read this, but uh, Psalm 25 I was noticing as, you know how when, you're already work, when you already have a message in your mind, everything seems to relate back to that message sometimes. Um, but if you notice, it says uh, in the middle of the psalm that we read this morning, it says in verse 12, What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. And, and again, you know, he teaches, he does all these things here. There, there, there is an evidence that comes, a manifestation that comes if you and I fear God. And so back to Deuteronomy 10, we find this very first requirement. If you and I are going to fulfill God's requirements for godly living, we must fear God. We must have that reverential awe of God that results in us learning of Him and hating evil and all those kind of things that we would look at. He doesn't just stop there, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He continues in these requirements. It says in verse 12 again, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, and to walk in all his ways. Not only must we fulfill God's requirement of having godly fear, we must secondly fulfill God's requirement 
requirement of walking in all of God's ways. And again, just as we did with fear, we need to think, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in all of God's ways? Well, first thing we need to understand is the description of walking. When we see walking in Scripture, it's not always talking about just physical taking steps. It is talking about the way we conduct ourselves or or our way of life. For instance, in Ephesians 5, we're reminded, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. In Ephesians 5, we're told to walk circumspectly. And so when we think about walking, when he says a walk in all his ways, he's not just talking about just follow this specific path. He's talking about conduct your life in this way. We notice not only the description of the walking, we also notice the direction of walking. He says, to walk in all his ways. Do you recognize that God expects us, requires us, to walk in all of God's ways? Um, you know, sometimes we, we, we kind of get the idea, well, I can kind of pick and choose those things that I want to follow God in, and I'll just choose the rest of the things that I want to do. Uh, even the, one of the verses that we read this morning, right? They refused firmly to do what they were supposed to do. We don't, God doesn't give us that option. The Christian life is not a smorgasbord that we can just simply say, oh, well, I like, I like going to church. I don't like giving I like, uh, you know, whatever it might be, you know, kind of pick and choose the ones that we want to do and we don't want to do. Now, the reality is, God says one of the requirements is that we walk in all His ways. There's to be a commitment at a heart level that says, God, whatever you tell me to do, whatever you instruct me to do from your word, that will I do. Now, that's easy to say, but it's not always easy to do. When God tells us to love those that despitefully use us and to pray for them, and we're living in a culture where that's becoming much more open again, do we respond by loving them and praying for them? Or do we, I'm going to take care of this person. By the way, if we're going to know to walk in all God's ways, we better get into this book so we know what all God's ways are. We better be reading His Word to say, God, what is it that You want me to do? What are Your ways that I am to follow? We need to fulfill God's requirement of walking in all His ways. Is that our, is that our heart? He goes on, he continues in verse 12 again. He says, And now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. To love him. God requires us to love him. Now, in some sense, because of our modern sensibilities, that sounds kind of weird. To be required to love someone, right? We think of love as strictly a you know, a feeling or a response or an emotion or things like that. And so how can we be required to do something like love? And yet we find the idea in Scripture many times of loving being a command. Uh, And and so here we're told we are to love our God. It says, what does the Lord require thee? To love Him. Uh, And this is really when we think about God's requirement of us loving Him. It's demanded, first of all, by His love for us. Right? John puts it this way. We love Him because he first loved us. Uh, and, and John, 1 John 3, he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And the response to that ought to be, well, how, how much should I love him? 
It says in 1 John 4, 9, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. So that God commended or showed His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this fulfillment of uh, this requirement of God's of loving God is, is natural because of the demand of his own love for us. And I got a fly that's bugging me here. Demanded of his love for us. But not only is it demanded by his love for us, but it's also demonstrated by our life for him. It's demonstrated by our life for him. Emmons says this, it says, Obedience to God is the most infallible evidence of sincere and supreme love to Him. And I repeat that. Obedience to God is the most infallible evidence of sincere and supreme love to Him. Jesus put it this way, If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 14 it says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth him. He it is that loveth me. You recognize that if we say we love God, it's going to be demonstrated by a life that is in obedience to God. Sometimes you, you deal with people that they say, oh yeah, I love God. Oh, I got saved back in fourth grade. I prayed a prayer at a church camp. And yet their life walks in a totally different direction. Wait a minute. God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. A love for God will be demonstrated by an obedience. Does that mean we never sin? No, obviously I'm not saying that. But does our life demonstrate that we really love God? Or does our life demonstrate, well, we, we, like the, we love the idea of God, but we don't really love what God wants us to do. And therefore, we don't really love God. So what does the Lord require of me? To love God. You know, we... We live in a culture where love is so perverted that we don't really stop to think, well, what is true love in a biblical sense? And, and when we do stop, what do we do? We look... And we see a whole bunch of stuff by how God loves us. And it's incredible when you think about it. God loved us so that He gave His only begotten Son. In fact, frequently when we find that idea of love in the Scripture regarding God's love for man, it's tied into God loved and He gave. Right? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And, and, and husbands love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself. Boy. And, and so, if a love from God is in part demonstrated by his giving unto us, a love back to God ought to be demonstrated by us giving to him, or giving our life, giving our service, giving our obedience, giving our wholehearted devotion unto God. We need to fulfill God's requirement of loving God. We need to fulfill God's requirement of serving, of, 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 of uh, fearing Him and walking in His ways. And then we find the fourth one still in this verse. It says, To fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. 
we find the fourth requirement that God gives. And that requirement is to serve God. God requires His people to serve Him. Again, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like some kind of onerous obligation upon us to serve God. It ought to be a natural response to us to serve God. Um, quick hint to husbands. Okay, I'm not good at this, so don't listen to me. Okay, but um, you want your wife to respond rightly to something. Now, that I'm not meaning this in a manipulative sense. But demonstrate a serving love towards her. And she will respond as well with a serving love towards you. Now, does it always work? No, not necessarily. But the principle is true. Okay, the principle is, is applicable, maybe I should say it that way. But we're to fear God. God has done so much for us, it should be natural for us to fear Him. And so we notice a couple things even about the fearing Him. First of all, we notice that fearing, sorry, that serving Him is to be energetic. Is our service to God energetic? The word, I get this from the idea of this, the very word that's translated serve here is the idea to work, to serve, uh, to, to keep, to compel. Um, it has the idea of diligently working. In Hebrews 12, 28, we see, Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, our service for God ought to be energetic. It shouldn't be, Oh, I have to go to the nursery today. Or I've got to teach these snotty-nosed kids, you know, and you know, whatever the case would be. No, that's not the kind of service we're to give. We're to give energetic service to God. And again, in any of these areas of, of obedience, if any of these areas of requirements, if we stop and think what God's done for us, it should be obvious. Oh, why can't I do that for Him? There's to be an energetic aspect to our service for God. It's also to be entire. Not only is it to be energetic, it's to be entire. We see again the wording that's used here. It says, To serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Uh, um, we're to serve the Lord entirely. Um, with all our hearts and with all our soul. Turn, hold something here again. We'll go over to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 and starting in verse 7 it says ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar and ye say wherein have we polluted thee and that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible and if ye offer the blind for sacrifice is it not evil and if ye offer the lame and sick is it not evil offer it now unto thy governor will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person saith the Lord of hosts and now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even its meat, is contemptible. Ye also said, Behold, what a weariness it is. 
And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. You recognize what God is talking about there. He's talking about these people that instead of giving God their best, that he rightfully deserves that which was holy, that which was pure, that they were just giving him everything. Just giving them, they're, they're blind for sacrifice. They're corrupted. They're, 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 you know, they just weren't giving him anything that they were supposed to give him. And sometimes I feel like that's the way we go about our service to God. Well, and I don't want to, you know, this, this is, you know, I have this thing here. That's really important to me. So if I have a little time left over at the end, I'll try to serve God with that little bit of time that I have left over. God says, would you offer that to your governor? He says, you wouldn't do that. You give your governor your best. Even as much, I mean, well, I'll stay out of that. We need to recognize that our service to God needs to be our best. That we give diligent effort to energetically serve God with all of our heart. God said that's what He requires. And again, that is reasonable service. The last thing we notice in God's requirements is in verse 13, back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Again, in verse 12, we read the context. What does the Lord require? The, the last of these lists is to keep the commandments of this Lord and his, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. We need to fulfill God's requirement of obedience. We have touched on this already in a couple of the other points, so I won't belabor it this morning. You recognize that we are to keep careful attention to God's word. We're to pay attention. What does God say? What is the expectation of us? What is God teaching us from this passage? And how can I actually apply what he has taught me here? It says to keep it, to guard, to hedge about it. We have a, require, a requirement of obedience. We already tied this in with walking. We tied this in with love. By the way, it's, isn't it interesting that all these kind of connect to each other? You know, our life in obedience to God, our life in walking to God, our life in loving God and serving God and fearing God is all one life. They all work together. God doesn't want to say, oh yeah, I love God, but I'm never going to do anything He asked me to do. Oh, I fear God, but I'm going to walk my own way. Those things don't make any sense. Because they're not designed to make any sense that way. They're designed that all of us, and we love Him, we serve Him, we fear Him, we, we, we worship Him, we obey Him. And so he tells us here the conclusion of this requirements To keep his, the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, as I command thee this day for thy good. There's to be a careful attention to God's command. And then secondly, there's to be a consistent application of God's command. Every command, it says, uh, to keep the commandments and statutes of, his, uh, of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. 
Are we obedient in all ears and not bearing false witness? Honoring our mother and father? Kind of go through various things. Are we fulfilling those things? Are we, are we having a consistent application of those commands? Or do we say, hmm. Jesus put it this way, Why call ye me Lord, Lord? And do not the things that I say. Why even say I'm your Lord if you're just going to do your own thing and not obey me? And so here, as Moses has spoken, he's talked about the commandments after they were broken, after he broke the Ten Commandments, now he brought them down again. And he says, what does the Lord require of you? And he sums up, I mean, we look at the Old Testament, probably 613 laws, some of it depends on how you count certain things. But he sums it up with these five statements of how to, what God requires of us. God requires that we fear Him. That we have a reverential trust in Him. I, mean, I believe part of that includes the idea of salvation, by the way. That, I didn't get into that. But that we fear Him. God requires that we walk in His ways. Is the direction, the conduct of our life following after the things of God. God requires that we love Him. That requirement ought to be easy for us. God requires that we serve Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Not just giving Him the leftovers of our life. And God requires that we keep His commandments. That we live in obedience to God. Are we fulfilling God's requirements for godly living? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that your commands are not grievous, as we're reminded in Scripture. That all of these things that we looked at even this morning are just, really ought to be just a natural outpouring of our consideration of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray you would help us to fulfill your requirements for godly living recognizing that it's not in our own strength, but in our obedience unto you as we let you, your spirit, and your word work in our lives. Help us, Lord, to obey your commandments for godly living. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand please and sing. Let's sing the first and the fourth verses. And um, one of the things that other students only mentioned is kind of echoing in my mind at near the end there. We love him because he first loved us. You know, God has done so so very much for us. And we, we we know that up here. You know, we we really in our hearts realize just how great God has been to us and His mercy and His love. And so, even His call, you know, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Maybe He's calling someone today. If He's speaking to your heart, we encourage you to let us know that. Um, we're just going to sing the first and the fourth verses.